thanks, Russ, I think. Um, no, that was good. Uh, that's a powerful... Um, what am I doing? Okay. Uh, that's a powerful uh, word, a passage that we're going to cover today. During our time today, we're going to cover three main points. Uh, the first one is that Jesus is serious about his father's house. Uh, the second point is that the Jewish leaders are also serious about their power and their money. And the third key point is that the seriousness of Jesus should cause us to be serious also, uh, prayerfully and humbly. Part of what we're going to discuss today is about anger. Specifically, we're going to see how Jesus becomes seriously angry and does not sin. And I've found in my Christian walk that that's where the rubber meets the road. How to respond to sin in the world or with someone else or whatever and not sin in my reply or in my response. Of course, he's the Messiah, and I'm not, and you're not, uh, but I'd like to learn how he does this. So today we're going to walk through this text and learn more about who Jesus is, what he's passionate about, uh, and what he expects from us as the one true God. As we discover what it is, this impacts us forever. This process is part of how the Holy Spirit changes us for his glory and for our good. But first, I have to chuckle at God's sense of humor. Um, I preach a handful of times a year, and I'm always amazed that it's usually about something that I struggle with. I'm preaching on anger. I've struggled with anger. I've preached on patience. I'm not the most patient person. I've preached on fear. I've struggled with that. I've preached on prayer. I've struggled with that. James gets the easy stuff. He gets to talk about dinners and parties and stuff. So I'm going to talk about the heavy stuff. Um, uh, so now regarding anger, um, it's interesting to me. I don't know if it's a man thing or not, but I've noticed as I've walked with men over the course of my life that the topic of anger comes up a lot. Um, I, know, I know women can struggle with anger also, um, but it seems to be particularly common among men about a significant struggle with anger, maybe bursts of anger. Uh, some hide it better than others do, but that, those can be the dangerous ones, right? Uh, it seems like it's often simmering just below the surface. Maybe it's because men want to fix things. Maybe we want to solve problems, and so much in our life and our world cannot be fixed or solved. And so we're powerless. We wrestle with the powerlessness to fix things. A lot of my struggles with anger have been in the little things. Technology comes up. I have a thing with printers. I don't like printers. When we lived in Atlanta uh, in the early 2000s, we had this printer. We, so we lived in a, our lot was a slope, and, and we had this unfinished basement. And at the top, so it was two stories. In the back of the house, it was three stories. We had this spare bedroom that doubled as my home office, and we had a printer in there. And we didn't, I didn't get along with that printer. Um, and it became something that would bring out the worst of me. And it was the printer's fault. It was not my fault. Um, and so what I uh, realized as I did that was that the... Um, sorry, I couldn't see. I was wondering why I couldn't see. I had to get my glasses on. So, <laughs> um, yes, the, my wife got me these glasses. Okay, so they're nice and they're pretty. Thank you. Um, but no, so I, I had this printer in the, in my office and, and I decided it just kept breaking down and I couldn't figure out why 
I mean, it said it would work. The computer says it was hooked up. I'd press print and nothing would happen. And I would, it would, you know, this was back before you could Google everything. I mean, there was the interweb or whatever we thought it was at the time. But it would take a long time to fix things. And so I finally told her one day, I said, that printer, when it dies, it's going out one way. It's going out the window. I will not carry that printer down the steps. It is not getting a dignified burial and disposal. So sure enough, it eventually died. Died. Um, I was done fixing it. And so I unplugged it. I went over to the window. I took the screen out. I don't, my parents are here. I don't know if they know this story. Um, I opened the window and I took it. And you got to realize, I wasn't just going to drop it. I was mad. Okay? And so I took it and I, I got half my body out of the window and I slung it down. And it crashed. It was a beautiful sight. It was, it was beautiful. And it just exploded. And Anne-Marie comes running and what did you do? And she says, I don't recall, but she says I had this grin on my face <laughs> that was just this satisfaction. And I, she said, you threw the, win- the, the printer out the window, didn't you? I said, yeah, I did. And I'm unapologetic about it. It was a beautiful day. Now, that's kind of funny, right? There have been some not-so-funny situations with my anger, um, when our daughter was a teenager, when she was, um, she's our oldest, Ava, and she was 13 or 14, I didn't get the memo that a new boss was in our house, and, uh, and it was a teenager whose brain functioned, but things weren't connecting. And she was like me. She was, she was um, opinionated. She would dig her heels in, and she would fight to the death, okay? Um, and her, her arguments could, ple- could be like, ridiculously like I don't want to say clue I don't want to be careful because uh, you know teenagers are teenagers so it just wouldn't make a lot of sense but she dug her heels on something that didn't make any sense and so um, Anne Marie and her would go toe-to-toe and then I would go toe-to-toe and one time I shut her down I won the argument I got louder than she did I was more forceful than she was and she backed down and she went and cried in her room and I walked down, and Anne Marie came up to me, and she said, you can't do that. I said, what are you talking about? Y'all do it? I was just setting her straight. She goes, yeah, but I'm not her dad. You're her dad. You crush her when you do that. That stopped me in my tracks. I didn't know. I didn't recognize that. I was a fool at that point. And it really resonated with me, and I, and I, didn't, I didn't approach her that way very much, at all, if at all, since then. Um, I had to apologize to Ava. Apologizing to a teenager is a humbling thing to do, but that's what I had to do. And, I, and by God's grace, I've grown a lot in this area over the last handful of years. Now, I recognize that part of it can be that I'm just getting older, okay? I'm tired, okay? But it takes what it takes, right? Hopefully, I'm actually growing in my relationship with Jesus, One of the things I've been bringing to God for a number of years is how to handle situations where a wrong will very likely not be made right in this lifetime. Maybe you've had this too. You experience or see an injustice, a crime, or some type of abuse. It could be physical, emotional, you name it. Uh, And you feel really hurt or angry. But I I mean like pound your fist on the table angry. And then there's something deep down that you know it's not going to be fixed. There's not going to be justice. A lot of other people may not even know about it. And if you bring it up, you're just whining, right? And so there are these situations where 
it's essentially going to be up to God at the judgment to settle it. And that's hard. That can be difficult. It has been for me. Um, deep down, I know that my, my only hope is Jesus in these situations and in really any situation. I cannot live well with resentments, and neither can you. None of us can. Now, when you think of Jesus as a person while he was on earth, what words come to your mind? Now, he's the Messiah, right? He's God. So one word is Savior. But in terms of his earthly demeanor, what was he like? I think of words like he was loving, he was peaceful, he was happy. I think he had joy. I also think of the term he was calm, cool, and collected. He just didn't seem to get rattled a whole lot. I mean, think of the person that maybe you go to school with or went to school with or work with or whatever, where they just seem to be above the fray. They're, in, they're patient. They don't let things get under their skin. They seem to have just figured out how to, how to handle things without getting hot and bothered. When I think of that, I think of the opposite of me. <laughs> I've just never been that way. Uh, when I think of Jesus, I often picture, well, he was clearly not like me. Um, I was probably more on the, on the other end like where Peter is or was. But I have to admit um, that for most of my life, when I think of these things, um, I'm, I'm really struck by what we read here today. Because it makes me ask, what if Jesus wasn't always as cool as the other side of the pillow? What if we're overstating or oversimplifying the calm, cool, and collected part? What if Jesus was and actually is at times very emotional and intense and passionate? What if Jesus actually lost his cool? Now that, to me, would be something really cool to learn about. And that's what we're going to do today. In preparation for today's sermon, I've learned a lot from the insights of uh, John Piper and Kent Hughes and Matt Carter. Uh, I want to recognize them. Also, Pastor James, I've talked to him a lot over the last uh, decade or so, and this topic comes up a lot, and so uh, he's helped shape me a lot in that area. So I'm grateful for their wisdom as I prepared for today. The first point we'll cover, again, is Jesus is serious about his Father's house. So to set the scene... Um, Jesus has just done his first miracle of turning the water into wine. James talked about this, that this happened at the wedding feast. The host tasted the wine and said, you have kept the good wine until now. And that's a beautiful picture, an awesome picture of the Christian life. The best comes at the end. The best is yet to come. And as we grow in Jesus, we experience more and more of the satisfaction and joy that only he can provide us. Now, Jesus is in Capernaum, which is close to Cana, where this wedding took place. It's springtime in Palestine, and I'm thinking it was a happy time. I mean, Jesus is hanging out with his mother and his friends, and they're just coming off his first miracle. Um, I'm thinking the, the people that are around Jesus are slightly pumped that they're kind of more important now. They're with, they're with Jesus, and so there's, a, there's a, an excitement that they have. It's also almost Passover time. Uh, which is likely bringing uh, an air of excitement similar to Christmas time uh, in our culture. Uh, the requirements for Passover took a month to prepare. Okay, so think of that time from Thanksgiving to Christmas where there's just a buzz in the air. It's a celebratory time. Jerusalem would have over 2 million people there during this time. That's a lot more than would normally be there. So it's very natural to read in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So picture it, Jesus and his friends are traveling, walking up to the city, and the crowds are getting larger and larger and larger. 
especially as he approaches the dome and the grounds of the temple, the congestion increases significantly. And as he gets close to the temple, there are tables and booths with people selling stuff, trinkets and souvenirs. I picture it like a flea market. I mean, it's just hustle and bustle. You ever been to the flea market in Raleigh at the state fairgrounds? Seven days a week, it's it's a sight to see. They sell anything, food, vegetables, clothes, you name it. They got cookies there. Cookies are good there. And it is not the place you're going to go if you want to be quiet and you want to be and you want to contemplate. You don't go there to to just chill out. It's, there's a lot going on. You would not hang out there just to rest. Some some of this might have bothered Jesus. That's possible. But what really bothered him is what he saw when he got to the temple. Verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now keep in mind that technically the law required sacrifices of these animals. Okay, so the setup, you know, a lot of worshipers were traveling from a long ways away. So the setup in and of itself is not bad. They needed a place to get their sacrifices for the Passover. But this particular setup inside the temple apparently is not just for the good of the worshipers. Kent Hughes explains it like this. This is really good, so pay attention here. The money changers claimed their business was a necessity. Changing foreign currency into Jewish currency because foreign money was not acceptable for offerings in the temple. Authorities tell us that the money changers charged as much as two hours of a working man's wage to change a half shekel. They charged the same amount again for every half shekel they gave in return for a larger coin. So if a man was coming in with a two shekel piece for a sacrifice, he would have to pay an entire day's wage just to change his money. And this brought in a lot of money into the temple. In fact, some years before, when a man came in and ravaged the temple and robbed it, he took the equivalent of $20 million and did not come close to depleting the treasury. So I think of, you ever heard of the Vatican Bank? I saw something on the History Channel about it, you know, it has like a billion dollars on deposit. That's what I think of. Furthermore, the sellers and inspectors in the temple sold all the sacrifices, Rabbinical literature tells us that inspectors spent 18 months on a farm to learn to distinguish between clean and unclean animals. They even learned, catch this, how to identify an animal that would one day become unclean if it was currently clean at this time. That's quite a a skill. To make things worse, inspectors had what, the inspectors had a really good thing going. Okay, it says here, the extortion was common in the temple confines. What's worse is that Annas, the high priest, was behind the whole thing. Sarcastic commentators in those days dubbed the temple the bazaars of Annas. They knew the high priest actually sold franchises for money-changing booths and animal sales. Okay, this is bad. Okay, this is embarrassingly twisted. So this is what Jesus walks into. And he probably knows what's going on. I mean, he's God, right? So people are haggling over the weight of coins, over animals, and whether they're clean or not. And it's essentially a circus. It's blasphemy. And the people running it are corrupt, and they're unapologetic about it. And Jesus is not happy. And he responds in a way that those around him had not seen before. Verse 15. In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
Now, this is one of those verses where it seems that words don't adequately explain what it was like to be there. There's that term, words don't do it justice. I picture Jesus, literally God in human form, like getting, like taking a whip and, make, and tying it together like a really good Boy Scout would. I'm guessing he knew what he was doing, okay? And then he starts swinging it around. And I'm thinking at that moment, he might have been pretty good at it. Okay, I mean, I know the Bible says Jesus was nondescript. He wasn't, he wasn't overly handsome from a standpoint where people would see him and think he was special. But I'm thinking in this particular moment, maybe he was left-handed, maybe he was right-handed, I don't know. But he's, he's whipping this, taking this cord and just scattering everything. Animals are flying. People are ducking for cover. There are feathers flying. In the, coins are going all over the place. And something tells me he's getting everyone's attention. Verse 16, Jesus tells the sellers, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So when I picture Jesus in this scene, I picture someone who is fiercely angry. Like in a way that they've never seen before. He's, I, pick, I think he's probably breathing heavy. Might be sweating a little bit. He might be spitting some when he's talking. And he's got a look in his eyes that's probably pretty intimidating. And it's like maybe the lamb has turned into the lion. This is interesting to pause and think about because so often we see Jesus as only being gentle and kind. And you know, like I mentioned earlier, he's the easygoing. He's above the fray. He's meek, mild, and lowly. And he is all of those things. Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Okay, But it's sin to ultimately ignore that he's also holy, eternal, and very serious, apparently. He rebukes Peter in another section of Matthew, saying, Get behind me, Satan. Have you ever said that to one of your friends? I haven't. I mean, that's serious. I'm thinking the Pharisees didn't see him as meek and mild in Matthew 23 when he tells them, you're like whitewashed tombs, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I mean, he's telling them they're going to hell and their life isn't even over yet. So yes, he's the Lamb of God, of course. And he's also the Lion of Judah who defeats the enemy and will judge the world. And in this situation, he's serious. He's on the attack. He's angry because his father's house is corrupted and worship is being corrupted. And Jesus addresses the the corruption of worship with the Pharisees. He hammers them in Matthew 15, 8. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips and with their heart, but, or excuse me, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the very definition of justified anger. Jesus is telling the Jewish people and us today that it's not only who we worship that matters, it's also how we worship. One theologian says it like this, the way we worship reveals what we really think about God. In 1 Kings chapter 8, that is describing the great temple that Solomon built. When the Ark of the Covenant was brought in, a thick cloud filled the temple to the point that the priests could no longer worship there. They could no longer minister there. They were driven out. The glory of God had come in and man could not be there. 
The sin of the money changers and the temple priests was blasphemy of God's glory. And he takes this serious. Jesus is really angry. We see that he is serious about his and his father's glory. It's worth pausing here and mentioning that in our culture today, we can be guilty of of a bad habit of reducing Jesus to a lot less than he is. We want to see God as a God who relates to us, right? He's our buddy. He just wants to hang out and watch a movie with us. Like how many people actually refer to God as the man upstairs, which is weak, and it's also ignorant. And ultimately, it's idolatry. Because we're going after a God that we've created and not the one true God. And the reason this is so dangerous is that over time, an irreverent spirit begins to take root in our lives. And we restrict or possibly even stop worshiping altogether. And this is one reason we've started having a call to worship when the music starts. Also, why we have someone read like Russ did today and pray before the sermon. We want to call attention to the fact that we're in God's house. And we're here to worship the God of the universe. Now, Jesus, of course, thought correctly about God his Father. He perfectly understood the holiness, power, and authority of God. That is why he's so passionate about God's house. Verse 16, he says, My Father's house, not our Father's house. This one word difference is powerful. He's telling those that he's talking to that they are not children of God. And just a quick heads up. If you go through life and maybe said a a sinner's prayer at one point in the past, but essentially most of your life or all of your life, you don't think much about worshiping God, you might need to revisit whether or not you're really saved. Even if you attend church, but you spend a significant amount of time thinking about what you like and what you don't like about church, or who you like or don't like that's at church, or what bothers you or what satisfies you about your church, then you might not really be a child of God. If essentially every Sunday is about you, then you're not much different than the temple merchants. Because the children of God worship God. And to worship God, we have to turn from self-worship to true worship. At Christ Point, one of our core statements for how we point people to Jesus is by experiencing authentic community. Biblical authentic community ultimately originates from authentic worship of God. This includes the authenticity, the genuineness of our reverence for God, which is important because it shows what we really think about God. It also shows it's a confession of how, we, how dependent we are on Him. Our reverence for God, again, authentic reverence, affects what happens in our worship. And ultimately, if it affects what we do in our lives. The ripple effect is eternal. This is why Jesus is so passionate and also so indignant at the same time. It's like, you know, think of your spouse. What's really driving Jesus is love for his father. So if someone is mistreating your spouse, if someone is mistreating my wife, Anne Marie, I'm going to get angry about that. And if I didn't get angry, at some point, you're going to question my love for her, right? So it's a natural outflow. And I think as the disciples are standing there in this particular scene, they had to be shocked. Because in that moment, the Holy Spirit brings to their mind Psalm 69, 9, verse 17. 
Now, this is a prophecy about David, or excuse me, a prophecy about Jesus, but is speaking um, about David. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The word consume in the Greek means to be eaten up. The Hebrew word for the same means in a flame. It means that Jesus and David are so closely identified with God that when someone defames God, they feel defamed also. And so Jesus responds appropriately. So the first key idea is that Jesus is serious about his father's house. The second key idea is that the Jewish leaders are also serious about their greed and their power and their money. The Jewish leader's response to Jesus is really telling. Notice that the disciples, the not very special people in the, in the Jewish culture, are the ones who think of the Psalms verse about zeal for his father's house. Now, the Jewish leaders know the Old Testament. They're steeped in the history and prophecy about the coming Messiah. But instead of seeing what the disciples see, they confront Jesus and they demand a sign. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They want to know what right he had to do that. What's interesting is that they don't question whether or not he was right in doing it. There's no self-examination here. That's not their concern. They don't have remorse. Again, Jesus makes clear earlier, these leaders are not children of God. The reality is they're not leaders at all. They're ticks. You ever seen a tick when it sucks a lot of blood? They're fat, greedy ticks who are sucking their wealth off of the backs of the very people they're supposed to shepherd. Now, the judgment, they're going to get what's coming to them, unless they repent, of course. But as far as life on earth goes, this illustrates that when you mess with a greedy person's money, you'll find out who they really are. These people are serious. They're serious about their power and their standing. And this is true. This is true of how corruption works in our world today. I mean, think of politicians. They go into office, very average or maybe even essentially broke. They come out rich when they retire. How does that happen legally? Now, I'm not saying that, that, um, that all politicians are evil. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's easy probably for a lot of us to think of those kinds of examples. When they get power, they become corrupt. And if you come after them, they're coming after you. Now, what's, it, what's interesting in this particular situation is that the Pharisees' response ultimately reveals how afraid they are of Jesus. They know he's got something that they don't have. He's got a credibility He's not just a political hack that hasn't gotten caught yet. He's different. He has authority. He was, um, ask, they were asking him to reveal himself because they needed to know more. So verse 19, Jesus answers them. Jesus gives them a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The leaders respond, verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? So Jesus is saying, how bad do you want a sign? If you want to know my authority, you go first. Bulldoze the temple. It's taken you 50 years, and I'll rebuild it in three days. But of course, the Jewish leaders missed the real sign, didn't they? The whole point. They didn't get it. Again, the disciples didn't miss the point. Jesus is often referred to as the second David. So it comes to their mind, again, back in seven, verse 17, about David's psalm, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Jesus shows up at the temple, literally fulfills the prophecy that David spoke about the Messiah. But the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, are too concerned about their greed and pride to see or even understand what just happened. So John comments in the next couple of verses, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is also referring to his body, which will be killed and then three days raised to life. Now some may ask, what's the connection between the temple and Jesus' body? And I think that's worth covering right here. Two quick points. The temple of the Old Testament is where God met man. Jesus is, of course, God. And through Jesus, God has come to man in a very different way, this greater, better, intimate, and personal. Second, the temple is where sacrifices were offered for sin. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for all the sins of mankind once forever. The sign Jesus was really giving is that after the Jewish leaders had murdered and buried Jesus, he was going to be raised on the third day. And his own resurrection is the ultimate sign of his authority. Now, according to these verses, no one really understands this. Obviously, the Jewish leaders would never understand it, but the disciples would remember this after Jesus was raised. Now we come to the end of chapter 2 where John kind of summarizes these events of the Passover. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This sounds pretty cool. I'm thinking the disciples were, again, pretty excited. But Jesus is not. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That hits pretty hard. This is not the way Jesus treats his own sheep. He calls them by name. Jesus is withdrawing his intimacy from these people. Which means these verses, Jesus is talking about people who supposedly believe and maybe even think they believe, but they're not his sheep. So let that sink in. We learn the, the chief, one of the chief goals of the book of John is stated in John 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We'll cover that more as we, as we unpack the book of John. But this is referring to what we call saving faith. John 1, verse 12, that James covered recently says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, this is saving faith. But here at the end of chapter 2, something different is happening. Jesus is withholding himself from them, and he is saying that they are not believing in the same way. It's like their faith is not real. They're not children of God. They're not part of John 1, 12. Now, they have faith. But whatever faith they have, Jesus doesn't approve of it. So I think what John is doing here at the end of chapter 2 is saying that. He's making it clear that not all faith is actually saving faith. One clue is their need for signs. Their faith required signs and wonders. They were with Jesus as long as the miracles were happening. They were chasing something else. The crowd, the buzz, the high... Maybe they thought he was going to overthrow the Romans and they wanted to be near the guy that had the power. 
Whatever was going on, whatever they had, it was not genuine. And this is heavy. It hits me as heavy. Because apparently it's true that for some reason, God allows some people in this fallen world to have a faith that's not saving faith. It reminds me of another part where not all sorrow is godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. That's a good thing. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's not a good thing. It's better for us to kind of wrestle with this and come to terms with this now and examine our faith. So the first key point is that Jesus is serious about his father's house. The second key point is the Jewish leaders are serious about their money and their power. The third key point is that Jewish, uh, excuse me, Jesus' seriousness should make us serious too, prayerfully and humbly. And there's a lot in this text today. God's word is meaty as it should be. Without the Holy Spirit's guidance and wisdom, we're just as clueless as the, as the Jewish temple leaders. I think it's important for us to always remember that without Jesus, we're toast. As humans, we have much more in common with Annas the hustler high priest than we do with Jesus. The same is true for the disciples. After Jesus' crucifixion, before his resurrection, they were scared to death. They were hiding, hopeless, and defeated. But then Jesus appeared to them, and everything changed in an instant. This is really beautiful. They became serious, very serious, about what God is serious about. And what's so cool about this is that the same is true for you and me. When Jesus saves us, we're His forever, for all eternity. And we're to be about His business and prayerfully and humbly follow in the footsteps of Jesus. At times, I think uh, we've become way too tamed in our Christian culture. It seems that the primary Christian virtue in many circles is to be nice. Now, being nice is good. Okay, it's nice to be nice. But if we aren't careful, we can believe the fallacy that thoughtful and intelligent people are supposed to discuss the most outrageous issues without any emotion. It's just not true. Circling back again to verse 17, David in Psalms and Jesus in our text today show That if it angers God, then it should anger us also. And I want to be like this. I want my heart to feel what God's heart feels. I want to love God so much that when His name is defamed or tarnished, I feel a holy anger about it. Now, I also want to do it like Jesus did it. In closing, I noticed three quick things about the the anger of Jesus. How He becomes angry without sinning. First, Jesus' anger is rare. Jesus does not die on every hill. He is not a hothead. He's not simmering below the surface. He does not fix every wrong. He's literally God. He's God. He could snap a finger and it all be fixed. He doesn't do that. That means that there must have been a bigger purpose that he was about, an eternal purpose that went beyond dying on the hill now. He essentially becomes angry over one thing, his father's house. Two, the anger of Jesus is specific. It's a specific wrong that he moves in to address, and it's intense. 
And everyone knows it. Everyone knows why. And everyone knows he's right. And three, his anger is quick. There's no sense that in this text that Jesus lingers. I don't think he rages on. He doesn't overdo it. He does what he does. He says what he says. And then he's done. I want to continue to become more like Jesus. When he's upset, I want to be upset. When his people are in danger, I want to move in to protect. When my brothers and sisters in Christ are wounded, I want to move in and bind up and heal. At the same time, I have to recognize that I'm not Jesus. I'm not the God of the universe. So if he doesn't die on every hill, I can't die on every hill. This requires a lot of prayer. I mean a lot of prayer. I've mentioned before that I have a a prayer list that I go through. And it's several pages long and I just kind of cycle through it. (laughs) I add things to it. I take things off. There are a few prayers that are are on my prayer list that I don't think are ever going to go away. One of them is help me fight the right fight. Another one... Another one is don't let my zeal turn into anger. Zeal is good. Anger, not so much. The third one or another one is help me not be resentful, but help me to pray for my enemies or those who see me as their enemies and love them as you love them. I can't do that if he doesn't help me. Another one is help me process, listen to this, help me process and handle all that I see going on, but can do nothing about. What do I do with that? Help me be about my father's business, even while the world around me burns. How to stay focused and do what I'm here to do. If Jesus is passionate, then we should be passionate. While also understanding that Jesus is in charge of the end result. And that's the best news ever. We can fall in his arms, beg him to show up, and he will honor that. If we prayerfully move into what God has designed us to do, we will learn how to be angry and not sin. Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for your living and active word. Thank you for showing us what it means to be angry and not sin. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Help us to become a people and continue to grow into a people that love as you love. Help us to see that as we serve and die to you, that we'll live a life like we never dreamed. You are good and your ways are good. Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.